Now we have the wonderful privilege together to turn our attention to God's Word. As we begin a new series this morning on the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 with me if you would. Revelation chapter 2 as we look at the first letter in these seven letters. And the first letter is verses 1 to 7, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Do listen as I read God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, which you are patiently, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the words of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord God, as always, when we take this time together each week to open your word, we do consider it a very special time. To us, Lord, our desire is to hear from you. We know that you alone are God, you alone are sovereign, you alone know, know the hearts of men, you are alone are in control of all of the details of human history. Lord, we gather not that we would hear stories and not that we would uh, hear speeches, but we gather to hear your word and to hear from you. Grant, O oh God, that I would speak your word and I would speak it faithfully. Lord, give all of your people who you've brought here this morning ears to hear as we open up and seek to consider your word together, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take up this study on the letters to the seven churches, uh, it's just important for us to, to recognize these are some of the clearest and most straightforward sections in the book of Revelation, this book of the apocalypse. It gets very complicated and full of all kinds of pictures and symbolism as we move on after chapter 3. But chapter 2 and 3 are pretty clear. And pretty easy to understand. And something about the application in them is pertinent. As we consider this again, it's important to remember, these are letters to seven churches. There were far more than seven churches at this time in church history. These would not be the only seven churches that were facing challenges, trials, difficulties, problems. We know from other letters in the book of the New Testament, when Paul writes some of the problems that were being faced by the Galatians, we know some of the problems that are being faced in the church at Corinth. And so there's challenges, struggles in so many different churches. But these seven are particularly selected here. And there is a sense in which when you look at these seven, you can see within some of the problems they face the very things that were going on in Corinth, the very things that were going on in Galatia, the same kinds of things. Remember, it's not too different. The scriptures remind us that when we are tempted and when we are tried, we can remember this, the same kinds of temptation and the same kinds of trials our brothers and sisters are facing throughout the world. And so we can know that with certainty. In a same way, the same kinds of things that we find in these seven letters to the churches, we can find in all of our churches. These seven letters have been preached millions of times since they were written down. 
all over the world in a multitude of congregations. And I'm quite confident of this. The thought was always, we are not Ephesus. We are not Laodicea. We are not. It's good for us to know all of the failures of those churches back then and of all the other churches around. But what I want us to understand is this is not given so that we would merely judge other churches around. Actually, the word that's written to the church at Ephesus was written to the church at Ephesus to say this to them. But what was this was, if you look at it in the context, this is a circular letter. Means it is to go to them, and it is to go, this letter, the whole book of Revelation is to go to all the churches. So all the other churches get to hear both the commendation of and condemnation toward Ephesus. So the words of praise that these are the things that you're doing and doing well, all the other churches would hear those things. These are the problems what your, where your church is failing and falling short, short. These things would also be known. It's important to recognize this. Though some of these churches, two of these churches receive only commendation, only praise and encouragement. That by no means meant they were perfect churches. And indeed, it's possible you could have visited some written if this letter had been written five years later. Some of the things written to Ephesus may not be true in Ephesus anymore, but those things might be true over in Sardis. And some of the things written in another city, as it, as it changes from time to time. Don't think because we think we're in a good place, because we think we're in a faithful place, that we will not stumble. It's important to understand also this first letter is written to Ephesus. To understand something about the church of Ephesus, uh, for that you would, you would look in your scriptures and see this uh, described, the events of this going on, really in Acts chapter 19. And if you go there in Acts chapter 19, we can see a few things that are unfolding in that passage. Now as Paul has come in there with the gospel... It tells us down towards verse 21 and following that as he's ministering in that place, that a riot broke out. Now, this place, Ephesus, is a, is a central place for a lot of trade, a lot of business, a lot of activity. It's a place where there is a, people would make pilgrimages even for the sake of visiting the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis. Looking under different names. It was a place of in intense paganism. They themselves, you know, the story of the place goes. When I say the story, it means it may or may not be true. Uh, they believed that they had within them the special place that a temple should be that was blessed by the gods because supposedly a rock or stone fell from heaven. So a comet or an asteroid or a little rock ends up making it through the atmosphere and hits the ground, which happens from time to time. And they thought, oh, it's, this is a sacred place where it's hit. God has sent us this special thing to show us what a special people and a special people we are. And what did they have? A little rock, which doesn't make you seem so super special and what could the rock do? Would water come out of this rock? No, that was the water flowing out of the rock in the, in the time of the Exodus. Could this rock keep you warm? Could this rock feed you? Could this rock protect you? Did the rock talk? Did it roll over when you said roll over? Did it do anything? It did nothing. And yet people, the way that, that, that they are in their sin... This is a thing. This is a glorious thing. And in the context of that, big business had arisen. And so you can see uh, through here, a man named Demetrius, down in verse 23 and following, begins to say this. Look, we're going to face a problem. Paul is coming in here and he's saying that there's only one God. And that our God is not God's. 
he's encouraging everyone to turn from Artemis, turn away from the temple of Diana, and to follow their God. And it's interesting when you, when you really look at it, because you can see what Demetrius' biggest concern is in verse 25. He gathered together the craftsmen and the businessmen, and he says to the workmen of similar trades, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. I ask you this, is Demetrius's big issue Artemis of Ephesians? Is his big issue Diana? Or is his big issue money, 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 money? It, this is how we make all our money. Now, he probably would have been willing to swap out if another God was being brought in. But with regard to the true God, is there any graven image? Is there any form? There would be no idols. There would be nothing constructed that would be used for worship. And so it wasn't that we could sell Artemis and we could sell this to the converts. Their business was nothing to the converts. And so they get very upset. And they begin to stir up. And he's upset because look what he says at the end of verse 26. Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So that's what Paul is saying. Uh, how hard should it be for anybody to figure out gods made with hands are not gods? I mean, do you really make something with your own hands, fashion it up, put a little wig or a little necklace on it, and say, this is our God. This is great and powerful. Does that even make sense? No, and that's why the scriptures indicate there's a big difference. To, to men, their gods are the gods they've made with their hands or the gods that they've imagined with their minds. But the true God, he is the one who has made all things by his power, by his wisdom. And all hands and all minds only function because of his power at work but they were concerned about losing their business but you can see that beyond them they stirred up the people uh, uh, with with great concern so that if you come all the way down you see in verse 33 a man named alexander whom the jews put forward motioning wanted to make a defense to the crowd he wanted to explain to them this is the reason why we're doing what we're what we're doing and the defense wasn't going to be, we don't want to dishonor your God in any way. The defense was, would simply be something like this. There is only salvation in Jesus Christ. One God made all mankind across the face of the, face of the earth. From the one man, he established all of the nations. He judged them with a flood. He set his heart upon Israel and delivered them. There's only one God and he sent his son. And in his son alone is salvation. And God has proved this by when his son was put to death for the sins of his people. He raised him from the dead. Declaring him to be the son of God with glory and power. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. There is one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no other God. Turn from these vain things to the true and living God. That's the defense that would be made. It's not that the whole point isn't to dishonor this or to dishonor that. It's that everything is vain. Everything is worthless. Everything is fruitless except the true God. Now the sad thing is we live in a world of people who see themselves not as idolaters. Most homes you go to, they don't necessarily have a shrine with some little carved God in it. And so as a result, uh, now I will say overseas, you still see this a lot, but here you don't. So people think that they're not idolaters because they don't have that. But whatever you love most, whatever you live for, whatever you pursue, whatever you obey, that is your God. 
Some people, their God is money. Some people, their God is pleasure. But everyone has something that they love and treasure most. And for some, maybe it's another person. But the scriptures remind us, there is only one God. There is only one salvation. Now, they were so zealous, it tells us in Acts 19, verse 34, when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, with one voice means that it's in unison. So all at the same time, this big crowd of people together are calling out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is, and it's going on and on. Now, it, to, to get a sense of the blind zeal of these people, to me, it would be striking if people carried on that chorus for 10 minutes. Got a second verse to that song, my friend? I mean, I mean what, you know... 30 minutes, an hour. I mean, these people literally for two hours continued like this, declaring this, pronouncing this in their zeal. Now, among those who stirred them up, were they thinking great is Artemis of the Ephesians or great for lining my pockets is Artemis of the Ephesians? And so some, they, their pursuit was wealth. Others, their pursuit, again, well, it, we're committed to our culture, our God, our people. All of that is vain. Everything else that a person will live for is in vain. To live for an organization, to live for a humanitarian society, to live for a religious community. To live for pleasure, to live for wealth, to live for another person. No matter what we live for, it all comes to naught. It all matters nothing. The only thing that matters is the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ, His Son. He is the, only, he is the one who has given us life, and indeed, He is the only one worthy to be lived for. So that's the context as he writes to this church in Ephesus. Rem remember this also. Uh, Ephesus is, is, is a church where they're going to they're gonna face problems and face tension. In Acts chapter 20, if you just go over with me to the next one, you're gonna, you're gonna, we're going to see this. He gives them this warning over here in Acts chapter 20. The problems that they will face, he says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. So here is uh, this, the, the context into which he's, writ he's written. The church at Ephesus that Jesus is sending this message to through John is one that had been established by Paul, that had been established, we know that he had spent at least three years total with that community and that he was teaching them, urging, insisting, warning them because of the dangers that would arise. So that's the context. Next, we turn our attention to uh, from the context to look at Christ. Each one of these letters will, say, will, will begin by saying something of the one who's sending this. It says this, uh, verse 1, the angel to the church in Ephesus write, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So 
That's the description that it gives concerning Christ. He holds the seven stars in his hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. What in the world does that mean? Well, thankfully, you, get to, you and I get to go back to verse 20 of chapter 1. This is helpful because many of the symbols, we're left scratching our head and saying to ourselves, it's kind of a mystery what he's talking about. And if things are left a mystery, what does the mind of man do? Ah, it weaves a myth. It weaves a story. Well, regarding the stars and the lampstands, thankfully, verse 20 of chapter 1 says this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. So as I ask the question, what are the seven stars that he has in his right hand? What are the seven golden lapses? As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there you go. Mystery revealed. And so we, this letter is sent to the to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And basically by saying it holds him in his right hand and walks among them. He is the one who uh, is in the midst of his church. In the midst of his people. Holding in his right hand speaks of his authority as well as nearness and dearness. So here is the one who is the head of the church. But not the head in a, in a distant and merely authoritarian manner. He is the head in, in, in a way where he has involved himself, engaged himself intimately with love. We remember when Jesus speaks uh, concerning his own disciples, he says, having loved his own who are in the world, the Gospel of John says, he loved them till the end. No one has greater love than this, that he would give himself up, give up his life for his friends. And the scripture reminds us that is indeed what Jesus did. Out of the great love with which he loved us, he shed his blood that we might be made new, that we might be saved. Indeed, as it says, if you were to back up to chapter 1, it says of him in verse 5, to him who loves us, halfway through verse 5, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is what he did. But the, the beautiful thing about the, this phrasing is it's not, it doesn't present a Christ who did something and after he did that, he's now distant. With all the mystery, he himself, the, the lampstands represent the seven churches and where is the sun? He is among the seven golden lamps and walks among them. It speaks of his involvement, his nearness, his engagement, his sharing. This is wonderful. Of course, it's wonderful if the church is faithful. Because we do remember that the picture that, that was given of the one like the son of man that was seen, not only radiant like the sun, burning flaming eyes and the whiteness of the hair, but a double edge sword coming out of his mouth which generally speaking is not something I want to see sounds painful and unpleasant and so but we see Christ he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the angels to the churches he's the one who leads and guides all of the messengers, all of the instructions, all of that is to be given. It is under his authority that the churches are to be led. And it is with his nearness and presence that the churches continue. It's, in, it's important to note this also. The church is represented by the golden lampstand. And it does warn at the very end of this. That if they, really in verse 5. If you do not repent. I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. 
Now, that, that, that's, that's a scary thing. Since the lampstand represents the church. Now, the scary part is the church is, is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Christ can come and remove the lampstand, but people might still gather together. They might still assemble together. But I have to tell you this. If lampstand is no longer there, in the con pre-electricity context, what would that mean? It is dark. Lampstand is gone. What would that mean? Yeah, there's no light. There's no way to see. There's no way to know where to go and what's going on. So it, it, would, it would be removing from them that light that reveals truth, that reveals honesty, that reveals glory. And more than that, not only does it shed light, but it, it, it also says it will be removed from them. It will be taken away. Now, what's interesting is the lampstand isn't itself necessarily destroyed. It will simply be taken from them. Where it will go, what it will do, that is all in the hands of the one who is in control of that. But we have this strong warning. He has the authority. Christ does. Now, look. let us look at the commendation. So from the context to Christ, now to the commendation. The words of praise or the words of encouragement that are given in here. Now, this is the first one, so we'll look at this. But I want us to see it really in the flow that's unfolding in all of these letters. Verse 2 says this, I know. Verse 3 begins with these words, I know. Verse 9 to Smyrna, I know. Verse 13 to Pergamum, I know. Verse 19 to Thyatira, I know. Verse, what is it there? Verse 1 to Sardis, I know. Over in verse 8 of chapter 3 to Philadelphia, I know. Chapter 3, verse 15 to, to Laodicea, I know. I'm hoping you caught the theme. Because it wasn't a secret one. He knows. Now what I, uh, this, is, this is beautiful because it's removed some of, the, some of the poetic language even of the Old Testament. And it's just come with brazen clarity. It's, it's not, I have heard. No. It is, I know. Does Christ need any testimony? Does he need any witnesses? No. He's not even coming for an investigation. There's no, tell me about your church. Tell me the good things that are going. He comes in with his absolute perfect knowledge and says, I know. Now, when it comes to the statements of commendation or praise... We can be very happy that he knows the good things and the faithful things that we're doing. But please be aware of this. The one who knows, knows all things. So he knows not only the good things that we're doing, the faithful things that we're doing. He also knows the compromises. He also knows the shortcomings. He also knows the failures. He, even, he, he sees what even we ourselves do not see, as we might even deceive ourselves. So it says, I know. And what is, it, what is it that he knows concerning the church at Ephesus? He says this, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. That's pretty nice, isn't it? He knows that, that they are carrying on, that they are laboring, that they are working, that they are bearing up, and they have not given up. They are continuing to struggle to do their best. I know your works. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have 
tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. There's multiple things listed. I know your works, your toil. I know exactly what you're doing. And remember, we as the people of God can recognize that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. That our works of faith, our works done in faith and love will by no means be overlooked. Praise God. He knows our works. He knows our labor. He knows the level of effort. He knows the level of intensity. And at this point, they're thinking, this is, a, this is a great thing to hear. He knows all that we've given. He knows how much we're struggling. The church at Ephesus, remember, they're having this, this great tension with the persecution because of the temple of Diana and Artemis of the Ephesians. Because of all of this, they're facing these, this persecution. They're facing these riots and these uprisings. They're having difficulty uh, in the society, and yet they're not compromising. What's beautiful about it as well is uh, their toil, their patient endurance. As things go bad and as they're facing difficulty, they're not saying, God. Why aren't you making this problem go away? Make this problem go away or else. No, they're patient, they're enduring. God is in control. God sees all that's going on. He's perfect in his wisdom. He will grant us strength. They're, they're not doubting. They're not denying. They're patient and they're working. And even some have come among them that it says this, you cannot Bear, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and who are not. So there are people who have come there after the fact and they've said, we are apostles. But they're not. And they have tested them and found them to be false. Now it's important for us to remember this. Paul had it also warned them with tears. There are going to be wolves will rise up among you in sheep's, sheep's clothing. They'll rise up from among you, from within you. Others will come from outside seeking to deceive and seeking to mislead. So they knew it. And when the false teachers, when, when teachers would come from outside, say, let me see if you really are an apostle. Let me see if you really are there. It was not enough for them to come making great claims. They would come with their great claims, but they would be tested. They would be examined. Indeed, uh, the warnings of Christ in Matthew 24, verse 11, Jesus had said these, these words. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Which is, it's important to know that. So will there be a few false prophets or many? Will their followers be few or many? See, so because they are, well, how can this guy, someone might say, how can this guy be wrong? Even though he says differently than you, there are a lot of teachers who teach the same thing as him. There's many people who believe what he believes. So there's many, are there? And look how big his church or organization is. There are so many people. He's got many supporters, many followers, many leaders. Is it not true that you see how successful, how many there are? Is that not the hand of God's blessing? No, it is not necessarily the hand of God's blessing. Indeed, Jesus himself warns us beforehand, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So sheer numbers means nothing. Actually, because of the words of Jesus, many false prophets and lead many astray, sheer numbers should lead to extra cautiousness. As we consider now, why are many following them? Because Jesus is also the one who said, narrow is the way that leads to life and few are those who will find it. 
So now, so that just gives us pause. So wait, are you saying that every big church is unfaithful? I am not saying that. Are you saying that every small church is faithful? No, not at all. There are miserably unfaithful small churches. There are horribly unfaithful medium-sized churches. There are ridiculously apostate massive churches. And there are gloriously faithful massive churches. Earnest and diligent medium-sized churches. Persevering and earnest small churches. Size itself is not the ultimate determiner that is to be here. But we need to bear in mind this. Uh, just because someone might come claiming their successes, claiming their accomplishments, claiming what they've done. And this happens a lot overseas. I remember when a false prophet was coming into India to hold his strange healing crusades. Uh, uh, people were clamoring together and they were wondering why some churches we're not participating. So we're not participating because the guy is a heretic. I mean, he doesn't preach the gospel. And the things that he teaches are, at, are clearly different than the word of God. We want nothing to do with that man. They said, but how can you say that about the man of God? How could he be a man of God... How could God not be with him if he's doing all of these signs and all of these wonders and has all of these books and all of this money and all of this success? And the scripture warns us, wait, even the devil himself comes like an angel of light. Indeed, he works false and lying wonders to deceive people. So does miracles mean anything? No. Do healings guarantee anything? No. So then how, what is the test? The test wasn't, let me see you levitate. No, the test wasn't, you know, heal somebody in my presence. The test is, they would listen to their words. By their fruit, you would know them. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you would come to know this. Do they speak more about human health? Than they, they do about Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sin. Do they speak more about worldly wealth than they do the glories and eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ? Does Christ end up serving the role of merely filling up and satisfying the earthly desires and pleasures we have now? Or do, people, or do they set forth Christ as the treasure? Christ as the glory? Christ as the goal? Or is Christ just a means to getting something else? God help us. It shouldn't be that hard to see. But these would hear, these would see. First John, he reminds them of a similar thing. He says in First John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world so he gives them this very clear very strong very necessary warning so that they would test them Remember, he tells them this when he reminds them back in Acts chapter 20 about the fierce wolves that would come in, who would speak twisted things and draw disciples after themselves, that he warned them. In Acts 20 verse 32, he says this, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Here's what I commend you to. To God and the word of his grace. If someone comes and they are presenting a word that is different than God's word, have nothing to do with that man. If they're presenting a means of salvation that is not that which is revealed in the word of his grace, have nothing to do with them. There are sadly so many 
forms and fashions masquerading under the title of Christianity that do not declare grace in all of its sovereign power and sanctifying power. They speak of grace, but then they give glory to the man who supposedly lays hold of it instead of giving glory to the one who dispenses it as he wills. We also um, uh, come in these passage in the, in these scriptures to be reminded of a few other things. As he gives them the warning, it, it, there in thirty three of Acts twenty, he says, "I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know." This is how you can tell. Are these men making much of themselves? Are they making big of themselves? Are, are they pushing their own name? Are they pushing their own authority? Are they pushing their own influence? Be warned of these dangerous people because they ought not be listened to. Indeed, uh, listen to what it says in 1 John 4, 6. I believe this is very helpful to understand how to distinguish these. Not only test every spirit, but 1 John 4, verse 6. John says this, we are from God. Here he makes this statement as a statement that is true of him and true of his fellow apostles. We are from God. Now, it is known who were those who were with Christ. Who were among those original appointed apostles. What you had coming later is men after the fact also claiming apostleship. And he says, he gives them this wonderful and simple sense. He says this in 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So what's one of the key distinctive ways of knowing whether one of these teachers who comes, one of these spirits who comes, whether they have God or whether they're not of God? Do they listen to the apostles. Do they listen to the word of God? That's what they listen to. That's what they bring their life into agreement. That's what their teaching declares. Or do they not listen? They're not listening at all. They're just talking. They don't even have time to listen because they're too busy talking. No. Whoever is from God listens to us. Whoever is from God does not listen to, listen to us. By this you will know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Is this teacher who's come, is this person who's come, is he clearly fully submitted to the word of God, the authority of Christ, the scripture? Or is he something else? Is he telling you, stories about his own life about his own experience when it comes is is christ the hero or is or is or is he the hero or maybe his father or maybe his grandfather or is somebody else the 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 hero is the glory being given to someone else other than god other than christ look what it says in uh second john it's only one chapter and says this in verse 7 and following. You, you see this theme so, so often stated. Verse 7 says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Again, many. This is, this is a strong warning, especially in, in our days of, of wonderful internet access. You know, it used to be the only way you were going to be exposed to a false teacher was if he somehow traveled around. And then it got to, well, if he gets on the radio, if he published a book, if he gets on the TV, now he's in your pocket. You know, they're, they're everywhere. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. And, and some of them are even denying that Christ came in the flesh. He says this in verse 8. Watch yourself so that you do not lose what we've worked for, but we receive a full reward. Verse 9 gives again a wonderful test to recognize is this person or is of God or not of God. Second John says, everyone who goes on ahead. Okay. 
and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. Sometimes the language messes us up, so so I want to help us. The term abide is a common term for uh, for dwelling. Where you dwell, where you live. You know where the, the, the men and women of God live? They live in the Word. That's where they dwell. That's their perimeter. That's their place. What is his warning? One who doesn't abide there but does what? Runs on ahead. Let me tell you this. You're not going to find this in your Bibles, but let me tell you this. The moment someone says that, you ought to be, wait wait a second here, hold on. But strangely, these days when someone says, you're not going to find this in your Bibles, but let me tell you something for sure. People move to the edge of their seats with excitement and anticipation. You know, you won't find this in your Bibles, but God told me, the Spirit told me this, God, Jesus revealed this to me. And when they say that, people move to the edge of their seat. And they shouldn't be moving to the edge of their seat. They should be pushing these fingers as deep in the ears as they can without puncturing the eardrum. Close it. Don't listen to it. Why? Because if, you, if somebody runs on ahead... Uh, again, that's the, that's the idea that uh, uh, of dwelling together in a group and someone has separated himself from the pack. I got more than you do. I got something you don't. Really? Strangely enough, someone comes along and says, I got more than you do. I got something you don't. Everyone says, he's a prophet. Oh, he's an apostle. We need to listen to him. No, you don't. You need to, as he's run ahead of the dwelling place, close the door. Don't let him back in. Because what it says about this man is it says, everyone who goes on does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. All right, this man is not only misleading, not only having errors, but he does not have God. Why? How can, how can John... How dare anyone say that? How dare you say they do not have God? And I remind you, I I didn't say it. I read it. John, the apostle, under the authority of Christ, moved by the Holy Spirit of God, said, if they go beyond, run ahead of what the word of God in Christ is, they don't have God. Again, like he said before, if they don't listen to us, it's the spirit of error. That's it. So so part of that will also be this. You'll find that those who are false teachers, they don't spend a lot of time in God's word. They're not going to spend, uh, open up a lot of verses. They're going to hit and miss, jump and pick. They're going to give you half a verse here, half a phrase there, a key sentence, a pithy thing to memorize, a bunch of stories, but they're not going to open up God's word for you. And my mind can't help but race to the wonderful reality. I remember when the scripture tells us about Jesus meeting those disciples on the road to Emmaus and what they said. Did not our hearts burn in us when he opened up the scripture to us? That's what ought to happen for the people of God. The opening up of the scripture stirs our spirit, stirs our zeal, stirs our interest. Not just something else. Let's keep going because... Uh, time is rushing short. He, he knows their endurance. They test the apostles who are not and finds them to be false. He knows um, that they are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake. So they're doing it even with the right motives. For his name's sake, the false ones are found out. They're laboring. They're working. All those things sound great. But look at verse 4. We go from the commendation to the condemnation. And it says this in verse 4. But I have this against you. Now that's a scary thing, isn't it? For he who has all authority, for he who holds all judgment, to say, I have this against you. I mean, that has to to be ultimately our goal, is, is to 
constantly and prayerfully consider what might there be in what we're practicing and what we're doing and how we're living and how we're functioning in a church. What might there be that he would look upon us and say, I have this against you. Because we don't want him to have anything against us. So what we want to do is listen to the things he has against them because my tendency would be, what could you have against this church? Patiently enduring, toiling and laboring, doing it for your name's sake, testing false teachers and declaring them to be false. I mean, what more is there? They're holding firm doctrine. They're holding faithfulness. They're holding on to your name. What more is there? Well, there's more. He tells him this. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, what's interesting is it seems that they may still be doing a lot of the same things. But now it's duty, merely, tradition, responsibility, habit, pattern, good habits, good patterns. But you know, you know they, they used to come together to what? To hear the word of God with earnestness. To love, the, to love God in worship, in the pouring out of their hearts. To love one another and eagerly be involved in one another's lives. Now they may be coming together still with the commitment to sound doctrine. Still with the commitment to purity of truth. Still with the commitment to endure. But where is the love? Where is that, that which motivated all that you do? And, he, and so he calls on them, verse 5, to remember. Therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember, not only what you did, but how you did it. The zeal. Even at some point, things can transition where initially you were doing it for God's glory. And then somewhere along the way as you were doing something for God's glory, you got a lot of appreciation from those in the church. Thank you for what you do, brother. Appreciate your service. Hey, thank you. It feels good. And so over time, suddenly, what? You're still doing it, maybe. But now you're kind of doing it for the... Thank you for that. Thank you for that lesson. Thank you for that teaching. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for that service. And you're no longer doing it in service to Christ, in genuine love for Him, in genuine love for the other person. You're, 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 the love has grown cold. You may still be going through the motions, but your motives, the heart, the core of it has changed. Remember, think on how it was and repent. Therefore, of the works that you did at first. Now, I want to say this, and I don't like this notion. Uh, Paul reminds Timothy to fan into flame the gift that is within him. All right, there, there, it is important for us to continually cultivate a vitality, a freshness, an earnestness, a zeal in our Christian lives. To cultivate that through prayer, earnest commitment to the word, earnest involvement in the fellowship. But listen, it, it, it's very uh, important for us to understand that the notion that when we're first saved, we're on fire. And, you know, it's just expected that over time we won't have the same evangelistic zeal we once had. We won't have the same earnestness. I mean, in those days you were telling all of your relatives and telling all of your neighbors, telling all of your co-workers. And it's just, it, it, it makes sense that in the early days you were all fired up and that uh, as time goes by that that kind of matures. No. The maturity ought not diminish the zeal. Indeed, it ought to only increase it. Because when you consider it uh, under the terms of, of fanning the flame, uh, uh, it, when you consider it under the terms of shining the light, the more that you grow in grace and knowledge, when you've been commended to the word of God, it, it, it's just like, 
heaping, the more you learn from God's words, heaping more fuel upon that fire. And heaping more fuel upon that fire. So it shouldn't be that we burn bright and then we just kind of have this steady glow that reaches to the end. No, by the grace of God, we burn bright in terms of a tremendous change at the beginning. But that brightness ought to be growing ever brighter. We are, there's an abrupt change that takes place. But as we gaze on the glory of Christ, as revealed in the scripture, we are changed from degree to degree in the image of him. I want to ask you this, during the process of the life ministry of Christ, could you see that as he came towards the end, his, his zeal was kind of diminishing, his earnestness was kind of fading away? Couldn't you see that? Never! He was faithful to the point of death. His earnestness never compromised, never diminished, and ours does not as well. Just because we see so many practical examples of people not faithfully following, and maybe it is partly a problem because of the responsibility of the churches. The teaching of God's word needs to be there so that people can receive those embers and put them. If the word of God is put aside, then what happens? No fuel to the fire, and the saints become numb. Oh, God, that we would fuel the fire. Oh, boy, there's so much more. Um, he says this, though. Repent and do the works that you did at first. They are to love God. They are to love one another. And that love is to be a love that still earnestly gives itself in labor, intensely working, serving. Also, it says this, if not, I will come and remove the lampstand. I like the personal nature of that. I will come and remove it. Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. We'll pass that by because we'll pick up the Nicolaitans in a later book, uh, in, a, in a later letter, which I also hate. You hate the Nicolaitans. These are a sect of false teachers. They hate their teaching. God also Christ also hates it. You've got to understand how important truth is to Christ in his church and how much he despises and detests deviations from it that introduce itself into the congregation. To the one who conquers, and we're going to see something more about the conquering throughout these, and so we'll unfold this more in the weeks to come. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, I, I always love this because it's, it's so helpful. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat. Which means, you know what? If generally this church fails to the faithful among them, you don't worry. Even if this church is taken away, to you who are those of faith, because what is it that overcomes the world? Our faith, 1 John chapter 5. To those who are of faith, even if Christ closes down the church, he is not pulling, he, he pulls that church from its position. Those people who are his in that place remain his. And they will share in what he's promised. Because their relationship with him is saving faith in Jesus Christ. The church has a role in the service of God. In the influence in the community. But the church is not the dispenser of salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. So even if this church ends up being destroyed, to the ones who remain faithful, they will enter their eternal inheritance and promise. So we simply see in there the context, such a challenging area of compromise, persecution, and paganism. Christ is the one who gives this message. He gives them many commendations of standing against false teachers, of patiently enduring and continuing to work. But he brings also this condemnation. They've lost their first love. And it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It's not enough to have good doctrine. It's not enough to protect against false teachers. It's not enough to continue to work for and endure for his name's sake. No, it's not. 
Who is he to demand more? He is everything. And he who, is de who demands more is also the one who supplies all that is necessary for life and godliness. So he gives them that condemnation and calls them to the necessary correction. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that we could spend some time in your word and there is so much in these passages and I just pray for these dear saints. We, we want to be a church that shares and has some of these very things that we see in the church at Ephesus that you commend. We want to be faithful. We, we don't want to be misled by the many false prophets and many teachers of this world. We don't want to be deceived and confused. We want to patiently endure and work and labor for your name's sake. But God, we also want to do it with an earnestness of love. That we would not abandon it. That we would love you and our obedience would be from the heart. That we would be obedient absolutely from our inner man. And further, Lord, that those who love you also love one another. Lord, that you would really help us not to simply work for what would be seen by others or what we would, be, would even be seen by you. But we would work for your glory, for your pleasure. We would work for the good of those that you've put into our lives. Lord, may we love you and love the brotherhood. In Jesus' name, amen.